The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, September 17th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And this right now, you're in the middle of comedy week, day two. By the end of this, we'll be 40% through the funniness. Kind of thrilling, kind of sad. Today's episode is a discussion of improv, or as my spell check wants me to say, improve. Improv is not just your roommate's show that she'd love you to come to and also maybe you could buy a drink. Improv is changing the world of comedy. But first, I want to bring you a brief excerpt from the live show that we did last night. The scene was the Bell House in Brooklyn, the third holiest site in comedy podcasting. Hari Kondabalu, Marina Franklin, and Khalid Rahman performed sets, and we all sat down and we talked things out. Now, in the news, as I know you know, is the story of Shane Gillis, the stand-up who was invited, then pretty quickly disinvited to join the cast of Saturday Night Live. First, a year-old clip of Gillis doing a stereotypical Asian accent and using the word, I'm going to say it now, it's a slur, the word chink, that surfaced. And then, after a couple of days, many more similar, I'm not even going to say performances, but him hanging out with other comedy-minded individuals on podcasts and him engaging in that same slur and those same kind of quote-unquote jokes over and over, they surfaced. So, I had this panel before me. They're all stand-up comics. I want to know what they thought about it. On the one hand, comedians are artists. Losing jobs over even failed jokes can't be good for the profession or even the culture, I would say. On the other hand, these transgressions were pretty blatant. And that, on stage, is attempted jokes, just more like things you shouldn't say because they're actually offensive. You know, let's consider that. I started with Khalid Rockman and asked him for his take. I mean, I listened to the clips of what he said. I've heard him on other podcasts that I listened to. And I think the mistake he made was, obviously saying all that horrible stuff was was the biggest mistake. Being being, being (laughs) racist was a mistake. That was the big mistake. (laughs) Uh, But the other big mistake I just kind of identified was like, it seemed like he was treating his podcast like it was a group chat. Mm-hmm. And like he, it was a private thing where he could just like <laughs> say like crazy stuff to his friends back home in Pennsylvania, right. but it's like actually people recording and listening to it, yeah. and not That's Snapchat, like a, which disappears and like yeah, it was just, that was yeah. the vibe that I got from like those clips at least. Laurie Kilmartin wrote a tweet that I really like. I'll paraphrase just how it's not a smart career move to treat your li- your career like you're never going to be famous. <laughs> you can't just go about it thinking it's always going to be in a void. No one's ever going to see it. Yeah. So also, it wasn't much of an ex- excavation. Do you know what I mean? Like he was saying that stuff a month ago. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like it was years and years ago. This is the same. He was probably in the middle of auditioning when he said it. Like wasn't that long ago. It's a difficult one though because I do know Shane. I like Shane a lot. I've had moments with Shane where I'm like, I don't think he knows. <laughs> he just said the wrong thing. Um, mm-hmm. But I've had that with a lot of white guys in comedy. He's not the only one out there. And here's the thing is like, he's a young comic, you know, and young comics do make very horrible mistakes. And now they're on podcast. And so, yeah, it it made sense that that happened. But I will say it's very difficult to even talk about Shane like this, because I do feel like the responsibility to protect comics Mm -hmm. i will not trash another comic because i know i know i am not perfect in any way i've never said anything i don't think um 
<laughs> that was horribly racist ever. You know, but you never know when you offend someone. What offends one person may not offend another. Now, obviously, what he said, I think that's obviously offensive. But if you go digging in my podcast, I may, you know, there may be something I said that that it makes a lot of people. It's, you know, it's it's and, I, and I'm torn yes. by it all. Yep. That's the thing that you don't hear comics saying when they address a comic that is offensive is that we're also very torn by it because, you know, I know how my soul is. I know how I feel about things. But as a comic, a lot of times I say some real fucked up shit. And we all realize we could say the so, wrong thing on a podcast or just like an, on a, a video. I'm and not then so have torn it. about it. <laughs> and then Hard have it cost so you. I just feel like there's a difference between us misstepping, taking an approach, making a mistake, and using racial slurs against Asian people repeatedly over yep. the course of years and as recent as like a couple of months ago. Like to me, you know, I understand the idea he's a young comic, mm -hmm. but that to me gives him less of a pass. I just because he knows how things work and he knows what's happened in the past and he knows how things go back. He's aware of it. And yet he's either so oblivious or so privileged, he doesn't even realize, oh, I probably shouldn't say this at the bare minimum for self-preservation. Mm. Mm. And I love comedy. It's not like I don't love comics. Well, no, I know you do. But it it's, seems it's like there about, are these competing tensions, right? One tension is what you just articulated, that many of these comments weren't really in the subject, in the pursuit of humor per se there weren't reversals putting the joke on him they were just trying to maybe get a laugh of the three guys he was joking with based on using an eth ethnic slur terrible on the other hand this competing tension is you guys are all comics it's an art form people you can't be held to the standard of a polit you shouldn't be held to the standard for your sake and the art form's sake to the standard of never making a mistake and never misstepping sure. so it is uh, a conundrum. I think a, a legitimate track record conundrum. is different, though, than a singular mistake. If it keeps happening over and over again in a comedy club band, it's like at a certain point, I feel like I hate when people dig through tweets and find the two things, and the person is a much different person than seven years ago. Right. You know, and, and I feel like, well, come on, like the, the, we're all trying to navigate a space where we put our thoughts online, and there's certainly things in my old notebooks from when I was 18 that I don't want people to read, you know. And now that same thing that was in my notebook at 18 is on the internet, which is unfortunate. So that's so I, I sympathize with that, but that's different than saying things verbally, being banned from a comedy club, getting you know saying slurs. Like it wasn't even like I'm doing. I'm trying to do a clever spin on a thing right just saying like he called what he called andrew yang a jew and then the slur for chinese people i mean like i like maybe i don't get the joke but that seems pretty i don't think it know? was a joke i think that's the problem <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know it was a podcast right, you can defend jokes right. but yeah. but the, it's a, it, it was a podcast like you said and he, you know what we saw was someone being very comfortable with saying those things and you know no one's fooled by that moment like nobody, we can all see it and recognize what that was. The problem that I, I really have is that Saturday Night Live still fights for the, getting a white guy in there. Yeah. And you, when you see that, you go, so there was nothing in his performance that showed you that was who he was? <laughs> but I'm starting to feel like no one vets anything. That's true. Seriously, I like put we this had, dude. I put this dude's name Sarah Palin, in. You know what I'm saying? Like we've had iPod, and this, like three of his last five appearances have this sort of material on a podcast. Yeah. yeah. 
I don't think there's any vetting that goes on when, in show business. <laughs> I mean, there is some vetting. Like, like historically, they vet people of color out, and then oh, they just absolutely. So there's there's that kind of low level. Like we're not even in the in the mix. Like we were talking about this backstage. Like we know so many people of color. Yeah, so he many came up women with like did. yeah. I mean, they just have <sighs> Asian. It's person. so hard to talk about comics. I know, but it is. It's like we know at least 10 really funny people who of color you know not that it necessarily has to be but it should that they could have looked at who you know? definitely we, haven't we have said racial slurs in the last two years yes <laughs> <laughs> The form of comedy that has changed the most since I've been paying attention is prop-based mime comedy out of Switzerland, specifically Moominchance. No, it's not. I'm lying. It's improv. But improv has gone from theater games of freeze to a comedy form with hundreds of thousands of practitioners. I think that's safe to say. It has become the training ground, the pipeline, if you will, for the funniest people out there in movies, TV, and fast food commercials. Here on the line, joining me is TJ Jagodowski, a Chicago-based improver who, with his partner Dave Pasquese, forms perhaps the most legendary and respected improv team in all the land. In 1998, TJ's improv team at I.O. in Chicago was considered by many the greatest ever assembled. It had him, John Lutz, who is Lutz on 30 Rock, Ike Barinholtz, Jason Sudeikis, and Peter Gross from Veep, with whom TJ recorded, I don't know, hundreds of Sonic commercials over the years. Yes, TJ's the Sonic guy. Also with me on the line is Amber Nash of Atlanta. If her voice sounds familiar, she is Pam on Archer. And right next to me, is UCB, Upright Citizen Brigade Improver Zach Cherry. You may have seen him selling a hot dog and yelling at Spider-Man recently. If you saw him, you would know him because when he walked into the office, three people said, I know that guy, I love that guy. And only two of those people were related to Zach. So TJ, let's start off with you. Among uh, our three here, you've been doing it the longest and you've been Chicago-based for what, most or all of your career? My entire career has been based in Chicago, yes. And your career trajectory shows it, yes? Uh, straight downward, yes. Mm-hmm. It's uh, <laughs> flat or, or, or down. Yeah, yeah right, into, right into Lake Michigan. But improv uh, is, is known as being uh, Chicago, if not based art form, but that's the real city of improv. So, I mean, Zach and Amber, they improvise in other cities. But what about Chicago has, I don't know, informed your improv practice over the years? Uh, I, it was, it's always been a great place to fail. And, uh, and with that, I'm not actually kidding like that, that even though a lot of the, the talent that may go on to, to other stardom, uh, came from here, those things usually happened on one of the coasts. And so this was a great place to just kind of do it, do it right, do it wrong, uh, do it for no, you know, other reason than just for the joy of, of doing it and just to try and get your reps and get, and get better. Amber, what's Atlanta like as an improv city and how long you've been doing it? Um, Atlanta's kind of like that too. I think because we're not New York or LA, there's a, there's a little bit more freedom to just kind of do whatever we want. Um, I've been improvising since 98, maybe 98. And, uh, we come from a different style of improv that is, um, 
Canadian. It's uh, theater sports, which was kind of um, developed in in Calgary um, and has moved throughout Canada and then down into Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> wow, classic trajectory, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and Zach, you're a New York guy, a Brooklyn guy. Yes. Um, I would say New York is also a great place to fail doing improv. <laughs> just costs just, more to do it. Costs more to do it, and you just have to go do it in a basement of a show that no one knows about, mm-hmm. and then you can <laughs> fail spectacularly. And it and it's it is a good way to you know just get better at it. When did you start? I started in New York in 2011. Was UCB the big game in town? The only game in town? How would you think about it? Um, I, you know, I think it was a big game in town. I also came at. I moved to New York almost specifically to start taking classes at UCB because a friend of mine in college who was an improviser had moved to New York and he was taking classes at UCB and he would come back and like teach us things and he would show us the ASCAT DVD. So for me, it was like the only game in town. But once I got here, I learned about other places to perform. But that was kind of always my goal coming here. It seems, uh, as an outsider, it does seem to me that something like stand-up comedy is a little scarier and it's more of the Wild West, but there's perhaps more of a meritocratic part of it. You don't have to rely on anyone else saying that you're good enough except for the audience. But with improv, I don't know, is that a good thing or a bad thing that you have so much structure? What do you think, Zach? Um, I think it was good for me because I am a scaredy cat. <laughs> and yeah. like I, when I first moved to New York, I tried stand up a couple of times, but it was very much a solo thing. And it was also like, you know, there, there was, I'm, I, I'm used to like going into a classroom and meeting people that way. So I was very comfortable with that like type of system. So it, it worked for me, but I don't know if it's better in terms of, uh, you know, the meritocracy aspect of it, but I know that it worked for me. Are there any flaws with the way that UCB does it or whether intentionally or just how it's happened to play out that this is the structure? I I do think, especially now with so many students that like the people who make the decisions about who to put on teams, they can only know so many people. So they know their students or they know the people they've seen on shows. So I do think it's possible that there are tons of like super talented people who might not get the chances that they think they deserve or that they want at the times that they want them. So I, I do think that is a little bit of a downside just because there's so many people doing it right now. Now, in, you always hear stories about how Belushi or um, Chris Farley immediately graduated from Second City. He was that brilliant. I don't know, TJ, if something like that is possible or works in with the uh, economic structure of a place like that these days. Yeah, I would say you know it's maybe maybe due to their brilliance they were they were more able to stick out. But I think there were a lot fewer fish in the in the pond then, and and sometimes um, that also might make a great performer. That doesn't always make for a great improviser. That's uh, point. because part of part of the way to I guess be recognized individually is to go out and and kind of be recognized individually where we're. We're taught as uh, as improvisers more often to like make the other guy look good, and so sometimes the the best improviser on stage is the person you might l- notice the least because he's doing everything how he's supposed to. So this is the main place I wanted to take this, and it's just based on an observation of mine, which is that over the last, I don't know, 15 years, comedy itself has become less cutting and less 
put down humor. And in fact, the major form used to be slobs versus snobs, but notice the verb in there, versus. And now it's become a lot more collaborative. And I can't mm-hmm. help but noticing this exactly tracks with the rise of improv. And if you look at, I don't know, Tina Fey, who comes from an improv background, and the kind of vibe she seems to have instilled or installed at Saturday Night Live versus those that came before, it seems stark to me. But mm-hmm. is that a fair observation? And do you see this showing up in other areas in comedy? Zach, what do you think? Um, I, I don't. I don't know if it necessarily comes from the rise of improv because I just I've seen plenty of like cutting improv shows that uh, are cutting both. I don't know on on broader issues, but then also just like where the characters are mean. But I do think um, I do think in terms of the collaborative maybe behind the scenes elements there there might be something there but i don't know how it's affected sort of what we see in the comedy tj what do you think yeah it's it potentially cuz another another one of those folks uh who you know came through io and second city here who had a big part in you know shaping the comedy of of the last 20 years or whatever is adam mckay um who you know certainly i could see you know if you're if you're in a directorial position and you can make this combative or you can make this cooperative, I could see him wanting to lean towards like, why don't we make this cooperatively funny? It's it's there's more places you can go with a yes than you can go with a no. So if if you know the folks who are framing or, or helping to determine the the comedy of the you know early 21st century were trained in a in a form that said you know look for ways to say yes i could see that having a, you know a pervasive flavor as far as what was being turned into product yeah and in fact the mckay type comedies you know anchorman is built on getting letting funny people improvise and we'll do f- 10 different takes, so many that we can essentially release two movies with entirely different jokes, which is something that he does. And that's exactly based on improv. Yeah, and then the the people, you know, he was choosing to do that, people like Will and uh, Keckner and Mr. Carell, uh, you know, are all white guys, but um, also were were you know pretty pretty darn good when they improvised on on saying uh, you know finding ways to to be to you know to be positive to make affirmative choices rather than destructive choices. Yeah, I think people are just generally trying to be more responsible whereas that wasn't something that was necessarily put at the feet of people that did comedy before. <laughs> you know, and now it's kind of like it's all of our responsibility to be better and make better choices and show audiences better ways, I think is kind of been a thing that I know that I've seen in Atlanta for sure. And maybe in a way Amber like what What's more daring now is to be kind. That, right. That I think when we, we first learned these, like, man, it's daring to go out there and try and be raw and, and destructive and, you know, and, and, and you know, bring, bring whatever this person down, bring this structure down. It may just be more daring to be vulnerable and kind now than, right. than it used to be. That's a wonderful observation. In terms of writing, either uh, writers' rooms that are writing sitcoms or uh, movies or any other scripts, how has improv and the fact that so many talented writers have an improv background, how do you think that that has affected the uh, the comedic scripts that we're seeing these days? Well, I, I haven't been in many writers' rooms, but if I know how some, some of the stuff that I've written and with friends, how we've gone about it, and basically we improvise. 
you know, we'll 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 improvise it and then either sc- uh, script it out from that. Um, and because a lot of us came up in the Second City style, where you didn't start with it on a piece of paper, you started by putting an improvised scene in front of a house and seeing how they liked it, feeling when they lost interest, and then how to string those beats and moments together so that at the end you had you had a scene, and then you would get a transcription of that scene after you had completed doing it. So you ended up with a script last from the scene that you, from the scene that you had made. And from hearing from friends who had worked on uh, shows like Veep, like, uh, like uh, Peter Gross or, or David Pasquese there, there's uh, you know, a read through and then people are encouraged to put it up on their feet to improvise from it. And then the writers may go off and come back with changes that were based on that, on that improvisation. So I think it's just a more welcome part of the process than, than it used to be. And, and, and quite frankly, when you're improvising, it's easier to accidentally look like a good actor. Um, <laughs> you, you, you don't have to, the part where you pretend you're hearing it from the first right. time is removed and replaced by the actuality of hearing it for the first time. And, and quite often then that, 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 that reaction is, is, you know, momentary and true, which makes you look like a heck of an actor, even, even if you're like me, not. Right, right. In acting, you know, the key the key trait is listening. But of course, in improv it is. If you don't, you'll have nothing to say the next time. Oh, you're listening your fanny off. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It does also strike me that 10, 15 years ago, that process you just described, professional writers, Writers Guild of America writers, embracing improvers um, and using their skills as opposed to getting their backs up and saying, listen, guys, that's fun for what you do, but this is... You know, this is this is the big leagues and we're much more intentional than that. It seems like that's been a big change. Uh, and that might be um, to what Amber was saying earlier, like to to part of the sensibility of an improviser. Like an improviser is well acquainted with the with the concept of a team laugh that I don't know who said it. I, there was no you know, it wasn't it wasn't Mike's laugh. It wasn't Ann's laugh. It was that was a team laugh built by built by the squad because we're here to make the larger thing, the larger thing better. And so if if improvisers are welcomed into those rooms, I think it's because it's it's not about it's not about them. It's about us trying to make this better. And most jerks are eventually weeded out in improvisation because no one wants to work with them. And so you have this kind of nice byproduct of kind people tending to rise to the top as opposed to the jerk who tried to stomp on everyone on the on the way on the way up. So you're also finding yourself, you know, probably in a in a writer's room with someone who has a nice personality, listens to others ideas is curious and tries to find ways to make things work before they try and find a way to destroy it. Yeah, I remember like 10 years ago, I started to get, or maybe even more, 10, 15 years ago, I was getting auditions uh, for commercials and they would say that they were looking for improvisers as opposed to just regular actors. And what what I quickly realized is because they didn't want to pay writers to write their stuff. They wanted an actor that could also write their spot for them. And then, so we all got pretty wise to it pretty quick and we're like, wait a minute, that's not fair. But it it was nice to to know that they were starting to realize the potential of an improviser being multifaceted in that way. Huh, TJ, have the 3,800 Sonic commercials that you and Peter have done (laughs) just been an end around to paying a writer? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, so we're yep, we're 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 part we're part of part of that machine now. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I do to what Amber was saying, I, I remember very early on in my in my acting career here, or what I refer to as an acting career, auditioning for like a a, a beer commercial where they said they looked for improvisers. And remember, I think, having like a fairly good audition. I didn't get the job, but I definitely saw one of the lines I improvised in the final in the final commercial. Fuck those right. guys. I think, yeah, <laughs> yep. I, I, I mean, it was a thing, you know, where they were looking for it to be written by improvisers on the way, I believe. Less filling. That was me. I said less <laughs> filling. <laughs> when they when they approached you, so people don't know. I mean, they know your face, TJ, because you and Peter Gross have been in how many three hundred something commercials? Uh, I think I think maybe more than that by now. Okay. Yeah. So you've been in all these Sonic commercials, and they obviously from the get go wanted you to improv. Did they promise you it would be anything other than one commercial? How'd they start? Oh no, no. Um, th- there was yeah, there was no promise from the beginning. I remember that Pete and I, the very first shoot was in Phoenix, Arizona, and we were sitting like in the in the lobby of the the hotel there in Phoenix, eating like the free tricolor nachos at the at the happy hour. And I sketched out on a napkin like, man, Pete, if they run all three of these, dude. We could, we probably made like six grand, man. Like, <laughs> rent is paid for the year, dude. We're kings, you know, like another round. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the fact that it stuck around this long was an absolute surprise, I think, for everybody involved, especially Pete and I. Where do you, where do you see either improv going or improv affecting, you know, comedy and the comedies that we see that we don't even know are in improv? What do you think, Zach? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, one thing one thing that I've experienced somewhat lately is like things that I've worked on where we improvise a lot, but then they don't end up using any of the improvised stuff. But it's still oh, you mean films or yeah, films yeah. shows I've been on. But you can still kind of it like helps me find the character, and you can kind of like just sense a vibe that it, mm-hmm. it feels a little more real, and you know the scenes kind of flow a little bit better. Um, so that's something where like. You know, we're doing improvising, but then you're not seeing any of that stuff on screen, but it still does have an impact. So I think probably that will continue to happen. Do Are all actors trained in it these days? Are there some who are like, look, I'm Royal Shakespeare Company and I need my lines? I, I imagine there are. I think because of my background, the shows that I tend to get hired on, everyone is for the most part comfortable with improv because I am better at that than I am at acting. So like <laughs> I wouldn't be hired for the jobs where it's like, we really got to nail this. Cause yeah, I, we need a Petruchio and yeah. you're our man, Zach Cherry <laughs> right. for some reason. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be happening. <laughs> Amber, where do you see this whole thing going? This whole shebang? Well, I think that, you know, um, improv has kind of come out of the, like the, like, sewers of like it used to just be like the joke thing like it's like doing murder mystery dinner theater it's like if you're an improviser people are like what but I think now it's respected and I think it's because it's more mainstream and because of people like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and all the UCB guys and um, so I think it's just kind of um, it's it's a it's a respected part of of comedy and and the acting world and the creative process in a way that I don't think it was before so I think it's here to stay in in that way that it's just like yeah, this is most comedy people probably have some experience with improv, and that's a good thing. 
But what about this phenomenon that a bunch of you, you guys, I think to some extent all talked about of there's this huge burgeoning infrastructure. It seems harder and harder to um, churn out all the improvers and also have them have an audience. Uh, I think about, you know, I think if you look at the statistics that our American conservatories every year graduate a few hundred people who are violinists, and yet our American symphonies have four open violin seats. Is that a problem? I mean, I don't know how many people are planning on careers in improv, because if they are, they're not going to make any money. (laughs) I, I see like most people go use improv to kind of springboard themselves into something else. Like there aren't a lot of professional improvisers out there. I mean, there are a handful of people that are like touring and teaching and making their life and kind of like on the the guru track. Um, but I think that it's it's a springboard for a lot of people as opposed to it being like a career path. I mean, TJ has. you, TJ, you may have made more money than at improv than anyone who's, I think, only done improv. Well, let's let's take May out of there and just make that a story. Let's say I have. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm a I'm a true freak, man. Like the the amount of the amount of luck that that I've been, you know, uh, lucky enough to fortunate enough to receive is 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 really is really bizarre. But uh, like like Zach was saying, um, a, a couple of times I've gotten to be hired, you know, to do little parts in a movie. But they knew I was no good as an actor and was terrible for script. So I also, you know, like got hired because they wanted someone specifically who who was going to improvise those, you know, those little those little parts. That's a great calling card. Uh, hire me because you know I'm terrible <laughs> as an actor. <laughs> I'm so bad at this. Let me be in your movie. <laughs> <laughs> no one, no sane person would ever hire me as an actor. Therefore, I get to only do improv. <laughs> uh, Mike, to, as, as, to, to the kind of like growth and, uh, and spread of improvisation, a, a few years ago, Dave and I did, uh, did a few shows in Europe. We played in, in London and Copenhagen, Rome and Vienna, and we did a workshop in Vienna, Austria, for thirty folks from Bremen and Moscow, and around Austria and around uh, Germany, Slovenia, and stuff like that. And we were saying, like, okay, well, like if this was in a Herald, or you know, if this was a second beat of a Herald, and all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, man, hey, has anybody here ever even heard of a Herald? Every hand but one went up in that in that room and Dave turned to me and said basically you know what 30 years ago there were 30 of us in the world who knew what who knew what a herald was and now look at this and the the woman who was from it was either Slovenia or Slovakia had been taking improvisation as part of her grammar school curriculum since the 6th grade um, so the 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 growth of it is not only in the entertainment industry here but it's 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 I've seen it change globally. I have this theory that we've all gotten funnier and mostly I attributed it to the rise of just comedy in the home and streaming services. And in 1974, Sunday nights, there was not one comedy show on TV. And on Tuesday nights, there was only the Sunny show and the Share show. And I watched some and they weren't funny. But maybe this is, maybe this has a major, if, if my thesis is right, that we've all gotten a little funnier, maybe the rise of improv is also to credit somewhat. 
It could be also the rise of the ocean levels. We know we're all going down fast. Yeah, yeah. So we better start getting funny. <laughs> the kind of humor is all gallows humor, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, man. <laughs> so if I were to write a book or an article, How Improv Changed the World, um, and I want to be maximalist and maybe overstate my case, but be plausible, what, would, what, would I, what should I say in it? I think it got a lot of people in their 20s to move to New York City. Yeah, okay. So how improv <laughs> raised the rents yeah. is the... Yeah. That's one, one element of it. <laughs> Um, I th- for for many of us, I think we've we've always, many of us have tried to keep a line between improvisation and uh, and self help. But if if you wanted to to blur that line, not to be too Pollyannish about it, hopefully it made us a little more in you know a little more uh, likely to listen to someone else's idea, or a little more likely to say to say okay, or you know a little more likely to be curious or fascinated by our partner um, and and maybe a little less wrapped up in our great ideas and what's going on in, uh, you know, the the solitude of our own heads. Mm. Yeah, like, I think collaboration is such a big part of it and listening, which is, like, s- such a... It's a skill that, like, nobody has anymore. And so I think it's so important. And, you know, that we're all storytellers and we all have stories to tell and there's so many different kinds of stories and people will... It's amazing what an audience will watch people do. Um, I mean, it, it's... it's and, and to come... Especially live theater, like, that's also something that could easily go away, you know? And so I think it's such a special thing to sit in a room full of strangers and all laugh together, especially in a world that's so chaotic and, you know, politics and all, everything's just a nightmare. And then you can go and seek solace in this comedy theater for a couple hours and have a beer while you're doing it. It's pretty magical. And I got to tell you, I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot of interviews with people in other art forms or journalism, whatever, quasi-art forms. And it seems like even the successful ones making a movie, they hate it. They always talk about this business, this, and the business, that, and it's so hard to do, and it's such a struggle, and how do you protect yourself and self-care? I do not, I am not hearing that from this conversation. I genuinely think part of that is because improv is not a career, so like, this is the place I go for the self-care. Kind oh, so of. woodworkers like, would say the same thing. Or <laughs> I, I don't know. Knitters. <laughs> but it, for me, it's it's something that I I do it because I enjoy it. And so I, I would stop doing it if it if, if it was like causing me all those things. But your career is comedy and acting. Yeah. And the biggest skill set you have is based on income um is based on improv. So, you know, it's not unrelated to your career. It, it's not unrelated, but the actual shows, the performing, right. that is sort of like uh, a safe haven from, from the other stuff, at least for me. Yeah, it's like a rejuvenation. It's like going to the spa after you get to do an improv show because it's like, you know, you just leave it all there. It's all, you can do whatever you want. You're not following anybody's rules but your own and you're, uh, you know, you're only responsible to yourself and the people that are on stage with you and you're all responsible for each other. And so it is very, it's so freeing. You just get to go and make fun stuff and make people laugh and and also like failure is so inherent in improvisation that that with that uh with with so many other like forms of performance or you know or 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 whatever art forms like some amount of like success is is the desired goal like more interesting failure is the desired goal of improvisation and once we can like like definitely you know, acknowledge that failure is an, an inherent part of this batter, then it mm. you can kind of take a bigger breath a little bit. 
Yeah. The only thing I would say is a downside for me is that I'm so spoiled that everyone I know and all my friends and my husband are all improvisers so that when I meet regular people, I'm just like, what a drag. (laughs) Civilians are a bummer, man. (laughs) Basically, you've gotten very bad at people disagreeing with you. Exactly. <laughs> TJ Jagodowski, you can see him all over Chicago and the world, apparently, Vienna. Amber Nash's home theater is Dad's Garage in Atlanta. Zach Cherry performs at the UCB and is in a, ton, is in a new show on Fox, a new animated show coming up called Duncanville. Guys, thank you all so much. So much Mike, fun. Thank for you. And that's it for today's show. Okay, shout out any profession. I need a profession. Okay, we got zookeeper. We got actuarial accountant, epidemiologist. Okay, there we go. Producer. Daniel Schrader is the producer of The Gist. The theme of tomorrow's show, day three of Comedy Week, is comedy podcasts. And indeed, The Gist is a podcast. Oomperu depperu duperu. And thanks for listening.